This is a podcast from 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. Hello, I'm Simon Moore. Welcome to In Conversation on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. Nico Fleury has been playing the French horn since he was eight. He's been principal horn of the Aurora Orchestra, the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra and the Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra and made guest appearances with a slew of orchestras around the world, including the Sydney Symphony and the London Symphony Orchestras. He's performed live on the BBC, appeared alongside conductors like Charles Dutoit, Neville Mariner and John Gardner, and now he's settled in Australia as principal horn with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. He's made regular appearances with organisations around the country, including Music Aviva and the Omega Ensemble, and I'm delighted to welcome him now into the studio. Nico Fleury, a warm welcome to MBS Fine Music Sydney. Hi, thank you for having me. So what inspired the move to Melbourne to become part of the uh, Melbourne Symphony Orchestra? you jumping straight in. <laughs> um, I was um, tired of the London lifestyle. To make it simple. You know what they say about being tired of London, you're tired of life. Have you heard that expression? I haven't, but you know, I'm quite happy to be tired of life then because oh. life in Australia is, is wonderful. Um, yeah, I was part of an orchestra and that orchestra was rehearsing very little and doing loads of shows. Uh, I mean, the stand of the orchestra was fantastic, but I could not quite imagine a long life there. So I thought, you know what? I'm competitive you know, let's just go for a job that might give me the lifestyle as well as the quality of um, of playing that I'm looking forward to having my life, musical life. And and then uh, and then I was fortunate to to win the job at the the Melbourne Symphony, and has been I've been very happy since. Had you come to Australia before? Did you know what you yes, were going to get? Yes, I did because I came on tour here with with different orchestras. As the Academy of St. Martin in the field once, and I was like, oh my God, this is wonderful. And then I came again for a residency with the Aurora Orchestra yeah. in 2013, I believe. And I met the section then, uh, Abby Edlin, who is still there. And I knew at the time they were looking for a principal horn, and I, I was, you know, it's the beginning of, a, of my career. So I was a little bit hoping that they could invite me because they came to the concert. We played Eroica at the Melbourne Reci- Recital Center, and that was very exciting. Mm. And then a few years later, I came in as a guest. Thank you to Abby for putting my name forward. And and I did a few weeks there, I remember 2015. Mm-hmm. And then when they went on expression of interest for the job, I, I formally applied for it. And then they went for me, so I was uh, so touched and delighted. <laughs> Good for you. I want to hear some more differences about uh, being in an orchestra in Britain and being in an orchestra. Because you're saying, so what, it's like... It, there's no rehearsal, you're just playing all the time, you're always in concerts and you don't get an opportunity like to, to breathe to prepare for the next thing properly. Yes, so with the RPO, there's a schedule would be Monday rehearsal, maybe 10 to 1, afternoon free, but then Tuesday we'll do a concert in Guildford and Wednesday we'll do a concert in Bristol and Thursday we'll do a concert in Newcastle. And so we would just have that kind of three hours call on the day, mm. two to five and 7.30 concert. So effectively you would do three, four concerts every single week. And the day you don't do a concert, usually you do a session for video games or, <laughs> or for a singer or for a movie. Yeah. And the reality is that the, the London scene is so expensive, you know, to buy a property, to leave, to... So you end up working so hard and you forget a little bit about 
why, why you do this in the first place. You have to spend all your money on, on an apartment or, or on your coffee in the morning because yeah, your life is expensive. Tube, it cost me £10 every single day to go to London to work. <laughs> so, look, I mean, it's, for some people it's amazing and it was yeah. amazing for me between 20 and 30. Mm. But then there's also thing uh, than music in life. You know, I want to also have a nice time to do sports, to to you know, to go on weekend with my partner, to do things like that that everyone else does in 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 the world. And I, I didn't feel I could get that in London. So I mean, I loved my colleagues in London. I loved the music making, the, the music scene. But it was not for a long term for me. Mm. Well, I think we have to go to our first piece of music, and you've got uh, quite a selection, a lot of big works here, Nico. What have you got yeah. for us first? Oh, I mean, I, I, I'm very touched by Brahms' Fourth Symphony. We just performed it a couple of weeks ago with Sir Andrew Davis at the MSO, and it was quite a piece. And the, the, the story behind it is that my, my partner is not a musician, and uh, and she wanted to come to that concert, and she always comes to concert. Like she, she really so she enjoys it. She enjoys yeah. it. She enjoys it. But the reaction she had listening to the first movement of Brahms' Four was beyond what I could ever imagine. And I mean, I, you know, when you play that those pieces so many times, sometimes you forget a little bit. But this is so powerful, and and this was so powerful. She was in tears listening to that piece, and it reminded me, this is why we do music to touch people who don't know about it. And you know, it was it's uh, Emmanuel Crivin, who is a great conductor in France, said of Brahms four, if you don't know Brahms four, it's like you don't know the taste of honey, <laughs> and and it's one of those things in life that. People need to know Brahms 4. So that's why I, I, I chose the first movement of Brahms 4 for my first piece, because it always reminds me why we do this.
London Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Bernard Heitink for part of the opening movement of Brahms's Fourth Symphony. The first choice of my guest in conversation today, Nico Fleury. Well, when most uh, people start learning an instrument when they're a child, they'll often go to or be, be directed to something like the violin or the piano or maybe the guitar. How do you start playing the horn? We are very fortunate in France to have a very good system to start learning an instrument. So it's a, it's a little story, but I'll tell it to you. Mm. Um, when I was seven, I was asked with all my colleagues at school, my colleagues, my friend, my <laughs> to go to the conservatoire for a day of discovery of music instruments, you know. So we go to that uh, beautiful conservatoire in Nantes, which is in Brittany on the west coast of France. And uh, it's a big city. People don't know about it, but it's as big as Brisbane, probably. Mm. Um, it has a very good music school. And we were asked to try instruments out. So within the space of a couple of hours, I tried the saxophone, I tried the piano, I tried the clarinet, I tried the trumpet, the trombone. And then I came to the horn room where the horn teacher was a very inspiring person. Like literally, that you know, you, sometimes you meet people you don't know why they have his charisma, and and he let me play his instrument. He took a mouthpiece from his horn case and showed me how to play, to you know, to form an embouchure with your with your lips and and then do a buzz and then do that buzz in the mouthpiece and then straight away I got a nice sound and he said to me, you know what, you could be good this at is this. For you. <laughs> and so I actually went for that kind of banter uh, with my teacher and of, and then he played something to me and the sound was wow i mean the sound of the instrument the beauty of it the shape of it i was just like obsessed straight away and i tell you what since i'm eight years old when i started so that was probably in uh, somewhere like in september and then you start in october or something like that and since the first lesson i know this is what i want to do for a living i want to do what he does i want to teach it oh, you, I want you knew right away that you wanted absolutely. to be a professional musician I, wow. absolutely i had no idea that existed but this is what this was my passion yeah this was i, I fell in into it just like yeah. Just like that. And I wanted to be him pretty much. Yeah. I wanted to, to make a living doing what he does. But isn't it so incredible that it, it so often when I hear these stories, it's it comes down to that person. It's the person who shows you the instrument. Somehow there's that connection with the person, the teacher, as much as there is yeah. uh, the instrument. So tell me about, about uh, life then. Um, so you're in Brittany, is that right? Yep, absolutely. L life is normal because my parents don't want me to have all the eggs in one basket, which is completely fair. So I hmm. kept doing my normal study on the side which got into specialized into music obviously um, and it was a system where you're in the morning you're at school um, and then the afternoon you're at the conservatoire doing history solfege we call it theory stuff like that and music instrument chamber music orchestra this kind of thing singing stuff like that and then from the age of 16 i every weekend i would go to paris to to take some lessons from parisian people which are more important but always kept that first teacher from day one to, so he was to, still there. To, to the day I went to London to do my bigger study. So w going to Paris, what were you being taught in Paris that your local teacher I, I think my teacher at the time said it's important you play to other people as well. Mm. To, to not be, uh, to have that narrow vision because, you know, musicianship is something you need to learn from different people. And uh, learning with that teacher, François Meron, I'm going to name him, mm. uh, worked really well for me for a certain amount of time. But at some point, I needed to hear from someone else that what I was doing was right. 
and uh, hence why I, I went to, um, to, to, to Paris, sorry, for a little while, for weekends. A city that I don't keep in my heart too much. Really? Yes, I... <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why. I had a few bad experiences there, uh, in life in the metro. You know, oh. I, I never kind of felt secure and happy there, and I was dying to really go in a foreign country to study. I always wanted that. I I, I liked to talk English, yeah. and uh, so I auditioned for the Workers of Music when I was eighteen, and I was lucky to to win a full scholarship to study there. Sure. And uh, the London scene, the London horn sound, is something very famous, and there was no hesitation to to go to London to study. Right. Well, we'll hear all about that in a minute. But I think first of all, we have to have some more music, and you've got some Beethoven for us now. Yes. I mean, Beethoven Seven <laughs> is uh, I owe it to my father. He played it to me when I was very young, and it's his favorite piece of music. And I got an absolute obsession with that uh, movement. I couldn't stop listening to it. I'm talking a very early age, eight. I just started the horn, and hearing the horn ringing in those Beethoven chords was just like, wow. And I, I would beat on repeat one, you know, is that how you say it in English? Like when you repeat the same track for... Oh, yes, uh, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. So I would just listen to it back and forth, back and forth all the time and every time I play it on tour or in whichever country I play that piece in because it's a piece that we play a lot it's very popular uh, I always have a, a, a thoughts from my father who played it to me is your father still with us? he's with us sadly he's uh, in a wheelchair now oh. but so there's always this beautiful story behind it and I pretty much owe it to him to play music too because he inspired me uh, not being a musician himself as such he inspired me to follow my dreams like that and he was making me aware of what beauty in music is
glorious second movement of Beethoven's Seventh Symphony. The choice of my guest in conversation today, Nico Fleury, who is the principal horn with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. And uh, that piece, well, very important to him and uh, very important to uh, his father as well. That was the Berlin Philharmonic conducted by Kirill Petrenko in that performance. Nico, is there a reason you wanted us to hear that particular performance? Yes, I do love the, the, the tempi of Kirill. He always have a new vision on a piece we've played so many times somehow he, he always uh, brings something new out of it and I could name quite a few pieces like this Tchaikovsky 6 the pathetic it's like hearing a new piece of music so I always love to listen to his interpretation of, of music and the Berlin Philharmonic doesn't need any introduction does it no when different conductors come and conduct you at the Melbourne Symphony or the, or the other orchestras you've been at is there much adjustment required or, c- or can you just easily adjust and quickly adjust to whatever they're trying to get out of the orchestra if the orchestra is good, we adjust very quickly. If the conductor is good, we adjust very quickly. Right. Um, and then there's a funny thing when the conductor we believe is not good, which is which is rare. They're very it competent people. There, yeah. But then the orchestra just kind of managed to turn in a, um, a in-house version. So this is what you're going to get anyway, <laughs> which is quite amusing. But usually we love having challenging conductors who ask things and uh, Jaime Martin our new principal conductor in, in the Melbourne Symphony is, is amazing like that mm-hmm. he's not gonna let us play he's gonna want some specific things and it's a pleasure to, to work with Jaime certainly mm. now you started talking about the Royal College of Music in London and, and you mentioned about the, the horn sound that they have there tell me more about what that means it's a very simple thing there's a there's a famous CD was been recorded by the London horn players, which is all the principal and all the section uh, from the London orchestras. And they got together and they recorded a CD only of horn uh, arrangements, Bohemian Rhapsody, Queen, <laughs> stuff like that, you know. Um, and that CD has been uh, in my CD player as well as Beethoven 7 um, for so long. So that, that horn sound is really... In, in, in me and it's a very different sound from the German sound with I would say maybe a little bit brighter and not a bit a bit less large a bit less volume but a bit brighter so I was always touched more by the London horn sound which is as I said a bit bigger and maybe a little bit uh, fuller larger and perhaps. that's to do with the performance style not the instrument itself it could be both, but I think I think it's a style. I think it's stylistic mm. because some of them play German instrument and they still sound British. <laughs> yeah. So so how how do you how do you learn that? How do you teach that? Because so, it must be so subtle, surely. It, it is subtle. It is subtle, of course. But I think I guess um, if I'm getting a bit technical here, I guess the German players don't put so much hand in the right in the in the bell. So you know how one players hold the instrument right. with uh, the right hand inside the bell. So German don't play it quite as deep as the British people and the British people play a slightly bigger mouthpiece um, oh, in so general there are subtle differences like that the, and Interesting. The, therefore the sound is a little bit bigger and fuller and less bright some people prefer the others yeah. some prefer you know you got to be honest with what you like and I know what I like yeah so apart from learning how far to put your hand into the bell of the horn if I didn't want to <laughs> what else are you what are the sort of things that you're getting out of you get out of that being at the Royal College of Music? Experiences. It's quite simply when people get into that um, conservatoire, that, that beautiful College of Music in South Kensington, they know how to play the instrument. They don't need to learn the instrument anymore. Mm. What they need is to expand what they know um, and then do chamber music with amazing instrumentalists. So when you, when you work in, uh, when you 
practice in your local conservatoires in France, the standard on different instruments is not quite the same. So it's not like you can tackle um, some big pieces of the repertoire because the standard won't quite be there. When you reach those colleges, in every instrument you have amazing players that you can um, organize to do a, a Dornani sextet or you can organize to do the Brahms Trio with a wonderful pianist and a wonderful violinist. It's not always a case like that in um, in, in conservatoire that are smaller. And of course, I mean, you get one-to-one -one lessons with amazing uh, artists who are still performing. That mm. was very important to me, to hear Timothy Brown, Timothy Jones, my teachers, and, and to hear them in the lessons and then to hear them that night in a show Mm. For me, it was uh, wonderful. And of course, I would organize to be sitting in the rehearsal of the different orchestras. And you just sit back in the choir stalls and listen. Listen how it's done. And you come back home and you practice and you know your limitation at that stage. Because the level of dynamics and articulation range mm. is enormous. And this is what I had to improve. And this is what the Royal College of Music gave me the mm. opportunity to hear what I need to get better. Interesting. You talked about your limitations. Were you ever worried that sometimes you weren't going to be able to exceed those limitations? Of course, I still do. Mm. It's This lives with you. When you're a performing musician, you're as good as you were yesterday. Today I have a rehearsal. Yesterday went well, but today could go very badly. I, you know, so mm. there's always this sense of... Uh, you have to be modest, certainly on dangerous instruments like, you know, the oboe, the horn, the trumpet, you know, all instruments pretty much. But there's some very dangerous instruments. I think the horn is one of them. <laughs> uh, so you have to stay modest. You have to stay um, calm. and you have, you have to trust the system that it's going to work. But there's always this sense of, am I going to play as good as I did yesterday? Next time I do Brahms 4, am I going to be in that space that I was last time I did it. You know, it's something, it's work in progress all the time. Yeah. Do you remember a particular uh, thing that you had uh, with one of those teachers that you mentioned? Was there something in particular that one of them may have taught you that you've carried with you ever since? Oh, I mean, I think that has to stay Apart from everything. My... <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I mean... The, once, uh, Jeff Bryan, who is a very famous home teacher in London, um, said to me, the music is written, just play it. The, so as in, if you panic, if you are in distress because of something, you may not feel like you can deliver as subtly and as beautiful as you can. It's always good to remember that we are just messenger here. Like, that the music is written by those amazing people. Brahms, Beethoven, Mahler, Strauss, you know. So just play it. So there's this sense of simplicity that we mm. often forget. It's like when you ask someone to, who does tennis, like how do you not freak out when you serve? But it's just like throw the ball up and yeah. send it the other side of the net. And that's it. That's all you need to think about. Trust the process and try to make it as simple as possible. I mean, I suppose, uh, yeah, as you said, the, the music is written. You just play it in the same way that an actor uh, has a script and they have to just say it. And, and you don't think about you don't think about it too much. You just have to say it because it has to sound natural. Is that a fair way of describing it? Yes, it is a fair way to describe it. And mm. of course, you're naturally going to do the dynamics, the the phrasing. It's it, you're born with it, you know. So it's not like it's going to go, and you're suddenly going to play completely unmusical. Mm. Well, the next piece of music now, and uh, another big composer. You've got Mahler. What's this one? Mahler Nine. Oh, this is a this is a beautiful story, personally. Um, Pekka Salonen came to the college to conduct Mahler Nine, and that was in two thousand nine, I believe. And uh, it was phenomenal for us. Ezapeka is one of 
probably my favorite conductor out there. And he was he was at the time principal conductor of the Philharmonia Orchestra, which is also one of my favorite orchestra. And uh, he was a guest to conduct that piece with us, with the RCM uh, Symphony Orchestra. Uh, it's last last concert of the year. It was a big deal. And I was lucky to 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 play first one in that piece. And and as a Pekka lacked what I do, you know. I, I, and it was a, a very touching thought. And after the concert, he, I went to say hi in his room. Uh, because he asked me to, and uh, and he asked me if I was a, you know, if I would be happy to do some work with the Philharmonia sometimes, you know. Wow. And it was a very, it was a kind of my first step. Of course, one of my teachers was also Prince Horn in the Philharmonia Orchestra, so that was kind of my first step into the professional world. Um, and it came from performing with Isapeka, and then Isapeka was happy to see me. He probably doesn't remember that anymore. But you, it made a big, More it was a to big you deal to him, for me. After of course, you know, it's important when you see a conductor and. They like what you do, they get touched by what you do, and they want to hear you come in their orchestra yeah. if there's a vacancy. And that's, uh, yeah, that was, I was very touched by it. I didn't expect it. And, and then since then, I worked with the Philharmonia very regularly for, for you know, ever since. Yeah, so, so can you describe a little bit more about what makes someone like Esa Pekka uh, a conductor that you warm to, that, that you gravitate towards? Can, can you try and put it into more words? Yeah, absolutely. For me, the charisma someone gets when they stand on the podium and uh, obviously a conductor has to conduct but the conductor has to sort out the rehearsal process you have a limited amount of time certainly in London to do something like that. I remember doing a huge program with Bruckner 7 and Wagner Tristan and Isolde Prude and Lieberstadt and and as a had maybe a five hours rehearsal to sort that out before we take it on tour and it was no question it was going to work so that, that aura he has he doesn't need to say much you just can read it on his hand straight away it's not difficult yeah for me amazing charisma is the main thing for a conductor
part of the fourth movement of Mahler's Ninth Symphony, the Philharmonia Orchestra, conducted by, well, a very special conductor for my guest in conversation today, Nico Fleur. The conductor was Esapeka Salonen. Uh, and, uh, well, I'm in conversation with Nico. He is the principal horn with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. So we call it horn. We also call it French horn. Can you tell us, uh, Nico, No, what, this what the story is very is? blurry, that. Or do you that not call it the very, French horn no, in France? Actually, the, I think the Interna- International Horn Society has removed the word French from... The horn. Right. So now it's just the horn. It historically there's a few theories like that, but um, but did you call it in France in French? Is it called the French horn? No, le, the, ho- the horn <laughs> is translated to corps, C O R. Yeah. We don't call it the corps français. No. We, we just call it le corps. So that's a that's a bit of a there's a few theories around that it grew at a time more in France and therefore because it's the English horn which is a, a long oboe yeah it looks like an oboe it's quite, quite different completely different cor anglais and yeah. you say it in even in French yes, in English exactly. <laughs> which is interesting <laughs> uh, but no we don't call it the French horn anymore I mean it's so deep in, into us again that people do call it the French horn but it's just the horn nowadays yeah so what are the main challenges for an amateur playing the instrument. I mean, you picked it up from the first day and were brilliant from the first no, moment. No, 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 no. I had to, I had, I could, <laughs> well, I, I, you, but you took to it, nevertheless. Yeah, but you know what? It's the funny thing about this is that I was very good. I was a very, uh, would you say, uh, it's not such a prodigy of the horn, yeah, <laughs> like a violinist or a pianist, but, you know, it was a very natural to start with. But then I had a big breakdown when I was 15, when I couldn't start the notes anymore. It's like my tongue couldn't articulate the sound anymore and I had to really melt down and I had to really rebuild from that to interesting to and now it's one of my strong point I would say like to be able to start the notes but uh, I guess one of the difficulty of of the horn is uh, unlike a piano when you press down you get the notes we, we don't get that and because the harmonic series we play the higher you go the closer the harmonics are together so to be able to pinpoint one is difficult because you could go just jump to the other that is just slightly higher or slightly lower so the accuracy is difficult that's why we often hear even in professional uh, orchestras uh, we call it split which is just when you just hit the harmonics below or above and it sound it doesn't sound clean doesn't sound tight sound or something like that yeah sorry and you get you generate the different harmonics just through how? Like, I've always wondered that. How do you get... I guess it's just tension uh, of the leaps of the airflow. The more air you put through the instrument, usually the higher you go. Right. right? So, and we, because we follow an harmonic series, you need to be aware that the higher you go, the closer they are together. So to pinpoint one at the top is usually very challenging. Mm. But the, the, the keys and the vowels that you press allow you to access all the, the other notes in the bottom part of that. Is that right? Throughout. Basically, the, the, the modern horn facilitates a little bit, but effectively it's the same harmonic series. Mm. It's just they, they shorten the instrument a little bit to allow ourselves to play all the notes of the chromatic scale. Because yeah. back in the days, we needed to have different crooks so we would have a... Now what's a crook, sorry? A crook is uh, on a natural horn, which is a horn without vowels that we can all see from different uh, drawings from back in the days. Usually, um, usually to do with hunting. Yes, yes. But Mozart brought it into the orchestra Mozart. So it means like it's two about two horns and a little quartet. That was the first time that the horn was brought into the salon, kind of orchestra, chamber orchestra, and never left it. 
it's always stayed like that. But back in those days, when we have a different tonality, you need a different crook to be able to play the harmonics of that tonality to go away with the rest of the orchestra. Yeah. So effectively, if you had a movement, uh, a symphony with four movements in four different tonalities or two or three different tonalities, we need to bring the horn and two or spare crook. Or, and you, that leaves on the stand. And at the end of the first movement, if we go to a different tonality, you change the crook to shorten or longer the instrument to make it sound like the tonality of the movement. So this needed to change. This needed to change. So, you know, I, back in the days, it's not nowadays. Now you have a new idea, you put it online in a week time. It's, uh, it's, it's everywhere. <laughs> yeah, back in those days, it was very different. So mm. it took a long time for the um, instrument makers to come up with uh, those different ideas of tubings and, and, and uh, using... Uh, the left end for us, which means bringing valves. Mm. I mean, I've tried to um, blow into a couple of wind instruments in my time, and it's been pretty horrific. But I have to say that the the horn, those kind of ones, are incredibly hard just to even get a sound out of it. What's the secret? Yeah, I guess the secret for it is to not be tense, because often people tense up all their muscle in their body to be able to make a sound, and it's not going to work. When I work with my student, I work on efficiency as much as possible. And when I, I, I give my instrument to someone who wants to, to try it for the first time, I see all this tension everywhere and there's such And all the air comes out the side rather than through the instrument, I think. Absolutely. So just <laughs> relax and just a, just a very set embouchure. Mm-hmm. A very, uh, I encourage a very natural way to 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 to, to blow the instrument. I think the the fact of the matter is, Nico, that some of us have it and some of us don't. <laughs> yeah, potentially. I think so. Uh, have you ever played natural? I mean, have you played professionally a natural horn uh, without Yes, the yes, yes. In my my study in France, um, my first guru teacher uh, was a very famous natural horn player. Yeah. And he used to go to Amsterdam with the Amsterdam Baroque Orchestra and Koopman to do lots of different project there every month which was so inspiring for a nine years old little boy like oh you have to china or japan to do a tour you know i was <laughs> like wow so yeah he taught us the natural one throughout our education as well as a modern instrument and you 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 didn't appeal to you to turn that into your profession like yeah no, I, have done, I have done yeah. quite a few quite okay. a few projects on, on on the natural one I, I have a great memory of bach Brunnenborn number one, when we play with baroque horn with holes in them, oh. which is wonderful. I mean, it's really cool. Uh, but, you know, it takes a, a very special person to do that. And I don't think I could jump from the modern horn to the baroque horn to the natural horn uh, very well. So I'd rather specialize. I'm aware of it. I love it. I practice it. But I specialize now uh, on the modern instrument. And that's, uh, I guess... What I do. Well, some more modern instruments now. uh, And we have, well, quite another famous, wonderful piece of music from Richard Strauss. What have you chosen here, Nico? Well, I mean, it won't surprise you, but all horn players love Richard Strauss, you know. And the Alpine Symphony is probably my favourite tone poem by Richard Strauss. It's just the horn part is just so wonderful. I mean, I said the horn part, the whole orchestra (laughs) is just like, it's just so phenomenal that uh, when you asked me a, a few pieces that I close to my heart, I could not not put the Alpine Symphony.
part of Richard Strauss's Alpine Symphony. Bernard Heitink, the conductor of the London Symphony Orchestra there. The choice of my guest in conversation today, Nico Fleury, who is the principal horn with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. And I'm very grateful that he is in Sydney. He's uh, actually here performing with the Omega Ensemble. Uh, happened to be performing with the Omega Ensemble this week. How have you uh, hooked up with them, Nico? Oh, well, it's, uh, it's a bit of a lucky um, situation where um, last year we did a great tour of the Brahms Horn Trio and the Mozart Horn Trio. Uh, and um, David Rowden came to the concert and he pretty much um, came for a beer after the show and he <laughs> said, oh, he liked he liked the concert very much and he'd like to, to play chamber music together with me. And I think we, we probably spoke about the Dornani Sextet, which is an amazing piece of music. And um, he said, yes, before that, we need a strong horn player. And I said, I'm in. <laughs> Let's do that. I suspect and a lot of concerts are organized over a beer. <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, no, that's true. That's one of the beautiful part of music. And then artist life, It's uh, you, you meet wonderful people sometime after the concert at the pub. <laughs> yeah. Now, that was the second um, thing we've heard from the London Symphony Orchestra just now uh, and under Bernard Heiting. Is, is that another conductor you particularly love? Yes, I mean, Bernard Heiting, it needs no introduction. Of course, he's one of those very respected uh, conductors. Um, You've worked with him? I've worked with him quite a few times. Sadly, I would say for me, and this might be a bit controversial, So, uh, but I, I, I worked with him when he was quite old, and I would have loved to work with him earlier in his life. Mm. Obviously, uh, it would not have been possible, but uh, I remember being a little bit disappointed because I thought the level of energy was not there anymore and it's probably not his fault of course health and things like that come on the way but I mean nevertheless the orchestra was such you know when someone like Bernard Heiting come to the orchestra the, the, the musician individually are really on their air game and you could really feel that it was with the London Symphony Orchestra and you could really feel that everyone is going to play their best for Bernard and yeah that's why the performances were unreal mm. Do you have to be fit, physically fit, to play a, a wind instrument or a brass instrument like the horn? I believe so. I more, believe more so than, you know, other instruments like violin, piano. I think sometimes people forget, but we, we, you walk on stage, you know, like you get 2,000 people staring and listening to you. So I don't believe you can do this job unless you have a minimal fitness level, is my opinion about it. And I encourage my, all my students to eat well, to exercise, to, to run, to have other activities that's going to challenge them and make them better because that will make them better on the horn as well. Mm. I'm also thinking, though, in terms of, for the purposes of a, a wind brass player, the, the lung capacity, because that's something that you have to surely do gradually develop over time, isn't it? It is, but it has to do with how, you, 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 how efficient you play, right. I think. So you could have a very small lung capacity and play so efficiently. And at the same time, you could have an enormous lung capacity and play very much Rubbish. inefficiently. And <laughs> so it's just, it's just the right balance to have. Obviously, if you smoke um, an enormous amount of cigarettes, maybe it's not the best friend of the horn player. But ultimately, it's about how to, to, to do well with your capacity. Yeah. Now, we're going to squeeze in another piece of music. And this is uh, something from the, the Schubert Octet, which is a, a great piece of music. And in fact, the only one on, on uh, the selection today, which is a chamber piece. Uh, because obviously orchestral works are your are your thing. You've you've played with the Omega Ensemble, Music of Eva, and so on. But to how do you compare the experience of performing in a chamber group versus the big symphony orchestra? It's wonderful to play in the chamber group because you have your own voice in the orchestra, which is uh, what I do ninety percent of the time. I would say maybe eighty. <laughs> um, you you don't you don't get a say. 
Of course, you get the same musically, you perform, but you get told what to do. In a chamber setting, you can actually have an offer, you know, you can say, hey, how about we don't do vibrato there? How about we shape to that point? How about we use that tempo? And you can try things out. Mm. And I think for a musician, it's very important to have that. That doesn't sound so good when there's when you're one of 80 people and you say, hey, no, of course, in the orchestra, you are, you know, someone that. has to do that. And <laughs> that when someone like as a Pekka or Bernard Heiting is on the podium, amazing, you know, Sir yeah. Andrew Davis. Uh, however, um, you know, it's great to have a voice too, you mm. know. So chamber music for me is that moment where I can actually tell my colleague, hey, how about we try that? Mm. So what was, what's appealing about the Schubert Octet that we're getting? Oh, that, 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 I, I still Schubert Octet because it's the, it's the absolute uh, incredible piece of music for chamber music for the horn, I think. You know, there's, a, of course, a Brahms horn trio. We have actually a lot of chamber music, uh, like a ridiculous amount, because, of course, we are part of the brass quintet, and we're also part of the wind quintets. Mm. And of course, we're also part of the Beethoven septet, things like that, Beethoven sextet. Mozart wrote a lot of chamber music for the horn. So we, we are so lucky like that. It's not, I, I, I want your, the people who will listen to this to be aware that the horn has so much chamber music. So it's not like we don't do that stuff. The octet is amazing because it allows you to work with string as well as wind. So there is a bassoon, clarinet, and then a string quintet. So you have this amazing palette of sound that's possible. And Schubert, I mean, did it so well. It's pretty spectacular. And uh, I remember touring Europe with that Schubert octet. And I, I guess musically, it was one of the highlights of, of my entire life.
Scherzo from Schubert's Octet. Uh, the choice of my guest in conversation today, Nico Fleury, principal horn with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. I like to ask this question of every expat. Is there something particular you miss about, about home? My family. My family is the, the, the answer that comes straight to my mind. I don't miss the croissant. Uh, don't miss the croissant. I mean, look, look, oh. There's a wonderful bakeries in Melbourne and you, you adapt. You, you. <laughs> no, I love when I go back, I love going to my local bakery. Yeah. But my family is the main thing. I mean, it's difficult because sadly my father cannot come here, mm. so they rely on me to to go there. And Are you able to go back? Uh, I will be going back. Pandemics aside, yeah. I mean, for three years I haven't seen them, mm. which was uh, awful. I was stuck stuck here, obviously, and because of visa situation, which I won't bore you with, I was not allowed to go out because no, oh, yeah. I would not be able to come back. So yeah, it was a difficult moment. But um, yeah, family is the main thing that I miss, and I. I hope to have a family of mine soon then. Nice. What about the coffee? I love the coffee in Melbourne. Yes, I well, absolutely adore it. right answer. <laughs> Although absolutely. the coffee in Sydney is quite good too. It, it <laughs> is, but however, it's a dangerous thing because sometimes I drink a coffee that is very good and very strong and I arrive at work and it's a very stressful piece with lots of long notes. <laughs> and I get a shake on my left hand and it's because of the Ooh, coffee. <laughs> too much so, coffee. So I try to avoid coffee before rehearsal when it's something difficult. However... I love coffee on my free days. You talked about turning up to, to rehearsals and work. Can you just show up and start playing? Um, I, no, look, you can't do that. Often I see uh, <laughs> some colleagues of mine. Well, maybe, I'm sure the violinists can't do that Five either. to ten is like, oh, just, just right from the, from the train and it's fine. They can just like, oh, let's go. I, I like to turn up to work very early. I like to do my... Because also there's something people need to know. If you keep coming to work at ten not warming up, not practicing, not doing your technique, you can sustain that maybe for a week or two, but, but not for a career. Because you can't practice effectively um, after six hours of rehearsal on a huge program. or It, it, it won't be good. You're it tired. Be, you'd it. damage yeah. your, your lips, your muscle. You know, you only have one pair of lips. You can't buy a sp spare pair of lips. So I, I tend to do my warm-up and technique religiously at 9 a.m. before the 10 a.m. call. Therefore, if I'm tired at four at the end of the rehearsal, I know I've done the work pre-rehearsal and I feel confident for the next day. And that's how I built my uh, practice routine. So that technical work, even for someone, a professional of your level, of your standard, you still need to do that every day. You're not just practicing absolutely. the pieces. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's like if you are someone who run marathon uh, very easily, if they train, of course they do. And it's uh, the part that the audience should not be aware of but it's something my students are very aware of ah drumming into them mm. <laughs> well Nico it's been absolutely awesome having you here today but before I let you go you do have one final piece of music to introduce uh, and we're going out with uh, well uh, something topical because I think it's at the Australian Ballet at the moment is uh, Prokofiev's Romeo and Juliet it is and I saw that in Melbourne um, and it was mind blowing so I encourage people to go and listen to that ballet it's actually people who don't know much about music uh, will be blown away it's Absolutely unbelievable, and I don't think you can listen to those notes and not feel something. Nico Fleury, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Horn player Nico Fleury, principal horn with the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra. That's the program for today. Find us in your podcast app by searching 2MBS In Conversation or visit 2MBSFindMusicSydney.com slash In Conversation. I'm Simon Moore on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney. <laughs>